Make Walters your spot before and after the MLS All-Star festivities at Audi Field. Skills Challenge Tuesday night, Arsenal against the MLS Stars on Wednesday. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing it along, drive to left field. This is toward the corner. Back goes half on the warning track near the Ivy. In the corner, he can't get it. It is gone. Goodbye. Bang, zoom goes Candelario with home run number 14. And the Nationals take the lead here at the top of the first inning. It's Washington 2 and Chicago nothing. Now the pitch. Swing a blast to right field and deep. This is way back. Suzuki at the wall, and there it goes. A long home run for Kaybert Ruiz. He is three for three tonight. He's just hit his 11th home run, and that's taken the Nationals' lead back to four. It's the Nationals' seven and the Cubs' three. What a blast by Kaybert Ruiz. And welcome to Nat Chat for Tuesday, July 18th. 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Wrigley Field in Chicago. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We know that Wrigley Field is known as the friendly confines for the Nats this season. Uh, let's be honest, most ballparks not named Nationals Park have been friendly confines, and that trend did continue on Monday night. A 7-5 win at the Chicago Cubs in Game 1 of a three-game series. The Nats improved to 38-56, and including 23-24 and on the road. Coming up later in the show, a scouting report on the man who the Nats took with the number two overall pick in the 2023 MLB draft, LSU outfielder Dylan Cruz. And the scouting report will come from an LSU legend, former Orioles starting pitcher and current Masson Orioles analyst, Ben McDonald. But Mark, for the Nats on Monday night, we had some good hitting, uh, including a home run from the uh, returning Jamer Candelario and a really good game by Cadbert Ruiz. We had pitching that was good enough, including a uh, now Hunter Harvey-less Nats bullpen that came through. I thought that this was a very nice win for the Nats. Yeah, I agree. I think you take away two pitches by Mackenzie Gore that he wishes he could have back. And outside of that, this is a really, really well-played game and good win for them. And even with those couple of mistakes that he made, they were still able to pull it off with a reconfigured bullpen that is very short on experienced late inning arms. And they got the job done in this one. Davey Martinez had to push them, you know, each of them going more than an inning. As he told us afterwards, he's probably not going to be able to keep doing that every night. They're going to have to find somebody else to help fill that void. 
you know, these guys are going to have to all, you know, man up and, and get out there. And we're going to have to see what, the, what, we, what we have. And, um, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm looking forward to that a little bit. But I thought there were a lot of good things to come out of this one. And the win is the cherry on the top. But I think the stuff they got from Mackenzie Gore and seeing what happened when they did push him, even though the end result wasn't as good for him, and also seeing what they got from some of their young position players, all that put together, I think, made this a pretty positive night for them. It was. Sunday was not a positive day for the Nats. Monday, in a lot of ways, was certainly with what happened in this game. We also, earlier in the day on Monday, had C.J. Abrams being named National League Player of the Week. But with the Nats hitting in this game on Monday night, seven runs, 11 hits, a walk, three for nine with runners in scoring position, and five of the 11 hits were extra base hits, including a home run on the first pitch scene by Jamer Candelario in his return. So take that if you have any concerns with the thumb. Jamer on Monday night was back as an ad starting third baseman and number three batter. He returned from a two-game absence caused by the right thumb bone bruise, and he went two for four with a two-run homer, an infield single, and a hit-by-pitch. Boy, his body has taken quite a beating here these last few weeks. A lot of little, like, you know, nicks and bruises. But Candelario in this game in the Nationals, two-run first, a one-out first pitch, two-run homer to left field for a 2 nothing Nats lead. Top of the third, he drew a two-out hit by pitch. And Candelario in the Nats, two-run seventh, a one-out opposite field infield single on a chopper toward third base. I mean... You really couldn't have scripted that much better in terms of the first pitch he sees. Any concerns about him gripping the bat? Gonzo with him smashing that homer. Well, and I'll tell you what, look at where that pitch location was. It was inside off the plate and he still turned on it and drove it down the left field line. If ever there was one pitch that you would think a guy with a bad thumb doesn't want to see right off the bat, it is the inside fastball. If he gets jammed on that, who knows what that reverberations are going to feel like. But he got his hands in, got good wood on it, and drove it down the left field line. And it was sort of like, okay, that was him saying, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Everything's going to be good. Then the little scare later on when he got hit on the left hand, but seems like everything was fine there. The state of this lineup right now is such that they need Jamer Candelario in there. Candelario and Thomas in the two, three spots, Abrams leading off, and really Manessis he didn't do anything in this game, but I think overall, knowing how good he's been with runners in scoring position, if they lose any of those four guys, it suddenly becomes a much more difficult challenge for them. The depth of the lineup is not very good after that. So seeing him back in there, it did feel like it made a difference. It just looked like a better lineup, and it gave them the depth to be able to get production from a lot of different places. Well, I say this as a compliment of Jamer Candelario. Hopefully, the Nats will be losing him in a couple of weeks. I mean, we're now just two weeks away from the trade deadline, which is on Tuesday, August 1st. And, you know, we've talked about the good season that Candelario is having. He's now just a point away from tying Lane Thomas for the team lead in OPS on the season. Lane Thomas is at 827. Candelario is at 826. And Candelario, 340 on base percentage, 486 slugging percentage. It's funny, last year, the Nats, of course, traded away their best hitter in Juan Soto. And when it comes to the deadline this year, it could be that the Nats end up trading away the guy who winds up being their best batter this season and Jamer Candelario. I mean, it's an odd deal. It reminds me a little bit of Josh Bell a couple of years ago where he's a new guy. He does not get off to a good start. But as time goes on, you really come to appreciate him as a performer. He has been, at worst, the Nats' second best position player this season. Yeah, it really has been a sneaky good move on their part to bring him in. Coming off a down year, obviously in Detroit, 
But Davey Martinez had him actually here in Chicago with the Cubs when he first came up. He liked him. Mike Rizzo and company felt like he was a real legitimate bounce back candidate. And boy, he has been exactly what they needed from him. So much so that obviously they're going to trade him, you know, provided they get any kind of decent offer for him. That's the situation they're in. But it's also tempting to say, do you really want to lose a guy who has meant so much to them? If you're really trying to win this year, of course, it's a different story because they're not. They can justify doing it. I don't think they're going to get five prospects for him the way they did for Juan Soto. But if you can get even just one good quality young player who could be big league ready either right away or soon thereafter, I think that is absolutely a move you have to make. Something is better than nothing. And, you know, Candelario, he plays a premium defensive position. He has played, I think, for the most part, a pretty good third base. So it's not like he's just some one-dimensional player you'd be trading away. So yeah, hopefully the Nats can get something halfway decent for Jamer Candelario. Also doing well for the Nats on Monday night was Kbert Ruiz. He got on base four times in this game. He was an Nats starting catcher and number five batter, three for three with a two-run homer, a double, a single, and a walk. Did get it picked off and caught stealing. But Kaybert in the top of the first had a two-out double to left field. He in a Nats two-run fourth drew a leadoff walk. He in the top of the fifth had a two-out opposite field single through the right side of the infield. But he then was picked off and caught stealing for the third out. This has been a thing with Kaybert Ruiz this season. He has made, I think, an inordinate number of outs on the base pass. And this was another example of that. But then he more than made up for that out on the base pass. In a Nats two-run seventh, a two-out, two-run homer, to right field on a 1-2 pitch for a 7-3 Nats lead. We all know that this has been a frustrating season for Kbert Ruiz. His uh, results numbers are not good. His process numbers, though, are good. He has hit balls hard, and so to see him have a good night on Monday night was nice. And I thought defensively, he did some good things, too. He caught some pitches in the dirt late in the game from Kyle Finnegan, some nice picks. Really, it came off one of the better all-around games for Kbert Ruiz this season. Yeah, those picks in the ninth inning, and I know it didn't, they didn't get him in the end, but I thought he made a great throw on the double steal in the eighth inning. It almost, it wasn't designed this way. It almost looked like a pitch out. The pitch kind of tailed away to the outside, and he was able to like catch it as he's rising and moving towards third and made a really strong throw, and they almost had him. That one was not on Ruiz at all. I do think he had a really good game. Can we create a new term here? Can we have the K Bear cycle? You eliminate the triple and make it a walk instead, because I think he deserves credit for that. Single, double, homer, walk. I think on the Caber Ruiz scale, that's as good as it's ever going to get. That was a big-time performance from him. And, and it shows you, like you said, the results maybe haven't always been there, but the process has been good. And on any individual given night, he can do this kind of thing. And it's why, even though his final stat line, when it's all said and done, may not blow you away, but I think we're going to go back and look and say, there's a lot of good in there and some really meaningful games that he's played. You just hope in the long run that those become more common and that then translates into a better final stat line because I I think he's having a better season than most people would think when you just look at what the numbers say. Yeah, I mean, certainly the stat cast data screams that. Just the 18th walk for Kbert Ruiz this year. So yeah, him walking happens about as frequently as most guys hitting triples. So I think that cycle thing does make sense. You know, we have the Victor Robles cycle, which includes a hit by pitch. So the uh, Kbert Ruiz cycle can include a walk. There you go. Also having a three-hit night for the Nats on Monday night was Stone Garrett. He is the Nats starting left fielder and number six batter, three for four with two doubles and a single. Now, uh, one of the doubles was a rather lucky double. 
double, but the first double was not a lucky double. He earned this one. Garrett in that Nats two-run fourth, a double to the left center field gap despite having been down in the count at 1.12. He in the top of the seventh had a two-out single to left field. The uh, lucky double came in the Nats one-run six, a leadoff double on a routine fly ball that Cubs center fielder Cody Bellinger lost in the sky. Many of you listening probably know this in case you don't. Wrigley Field has no lights behind outfielders. And so some weird things can happen in the uh, night skies of Wrigley Field. And Stone Garrett in this instance was the beneficiary. But, you know, watching that play, I mean, you almost are like frightened for Bellinger because his hands were up in the air. It felt like for like an hour and a half, he could not find the baseball. And, you know, you don't know, God forbid, that ball lands like right on his head, like what could happen? I mean, he was (laughs) borderline panicking. I mean, it's comical to watch, but that's not a great scenario to have a setup there where outfielders can lose balls like that in the sky. This was not like the sun monster striking. This was something different. No, this was the uh, dusk monster, I think it was. Look, when you have a ballpark that was built in, I believe, 1914 and didn't have lights installed until 1988... You're going to end up with some weird things like this. But speaking of weird, I don't ever remember this being the case. The Nats are playing three straight night games here at Wrigley this week. Zero day games. I've been coming here for years and years and years. I don't think I've ever, outside of a playoff series, seen three straight night games and no getaway day games. Very odd. You know, it's it's still a cool place to see a, a game at night. But boy, it'd be nice to have at least one day game while we're here. Just on Stone Garrett in general. He's really doing a good job in the role that they have him in. He is mashing left-handed pitching. You know, you wish he could just be a little more effective against righties, hit for a little more power. It just hasn't been there for him. But as a platoon player, he's been exactly what they've needed. He's played a good left field, usually replaces Corey Dickerson late in a game. He went up against the famed Wrigley brick wall in this game to make a catch. And there aren't many guys out there that I would give a chance to survive that. Stone Garrett's like the one guy who's actually going to inflict some pain on the brick wall. Stone beats brick in that case. I I thought he had a a sneaky, very good game for them here tonight. And is doing a nice job for them in the overall picture. I want to see the bench press contest between Stone Garrett and Roger Bernardina. I'm not sure who you put your money on in that affair, but uh, that would be quite the battle. Yeah, Stone Garrett on the season now, OPS of 760. For comparison's sake, your Corey Dickerson OPS is at 620. I know that it has been a platoon situation. I really do wonder if more and more we're going to start seeing Stone Garrett. There just is not a lot happening with Corey Dickerson right now. And uh, at least with Garrett, you feel like you have a chance offensively. Like he is a guy who can give you some good at bats. He has some pop and he has been producing certainly a lot more than Dickerson has been. Yeah. And the defense is an upgrade as well. So you put that all together and yeah, maybe once they get past the trade deadline, I don't think they're getting anything for Dickerson at this point. I don't care what he does over the next 10 days, but maybe once you get past that point, you start to make a little pivot and say, really, these last two months are about who might be a part of this moving forward. We know Corey Dickerson was a short-term rental. They hoped that he would do what Jamer Candelario has done. It hasn't worked out that way. But as you said, Stone Garrett is a guy who's under control for quite a while. I don't know if given the chance to play every day, if he would be able to produce to that level. Can he hit right-handers at a clip that's enough to justify him playing every day? I don't know. But you may reach a point here where it's worth at least finding out how he does in that situation. When you think about the Nats and their outfield situation at the major league level, perhaps save for Lane Thomas. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but 
it really just does feel like the Nats have a collection of fourth outfielders. And we're all just kind of waiting for the prospects to arrive. You know, we're awaiting the Dylan Cruises and the James Woodses and, you know, hopefully the Elijah Greens and the Robert Hasselses and uh, see what they can do at the major league level. But yeah, I mean, for now, Stone Garrett is doing a good job, all things considered. And C.J. Abrams continues to do a good job as the Nats' new regular number one batter. He on Monday night Starting shortstop, number one batter, one for four with a single, a hit by pitch, and a stolen base. So another game in which he gets on base multiple times. I mentioned uh, earlier in the day him being named National League Player of the Week. But here's how you know that uh, things are going your way right now. C.J. Abrams in the Nats two-run first on Monday night, a leadoff hit by pitch, and he then stole second base. But it's not as simple as that. The steal of second base happened despite the Cubs having Abrams picked off. I mean, the Cubs anticipated the stolen base attempt with a throw to first base on a pickoff attempt, but Abrams outran the throw from first base to second base. And the runner going. They have him picked. Jungle by Mancini. The throw to second. And safe is the call as Christopher Morell, the second baseman, reached for the tag on Abrams. It's a credit to Abrams' speed, to be sure. But like, if ever you needed a sign that things be going the way of C.J. Abrams right now, that was a sign right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but now, hey, good for him. He didn't give up on the play. He ran hard all the way. He made a nice slide to avoid the tag. But yeah, you are living large when you are getting picked off and still getting credit for stolen base at the end of it. But player of the week is not the most important thing in the world, obviously. And in this case, it's really player of the weekend because there were only three days in the last baseball week because of the all-star break. Having said all that, the more that you can find ways to validate what CJ Abrams is doing, to reward him for it, to recognize what he's doing. I think it's good for him. I think he needs a little positive reinforcement. Putting him in the leadoff spot helped him. Seeing the results he's had since then has helped him. And now getting some recognition for it. I think all of that will help him in the long run. We've seen good things from him at times since he first got here, but we're really now seeing the complete package. And he strikes me as the kind of guy that once things get going in the right direction, they're going to keep getting better because he feels that he grows in his confidence. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And the Nats on Monday night had this good offensive game despite Lane Thomas and Joy Manessis having bad nights. Lane Thomas and Joy Manessis on Monday night, a combined 0 for 10 with four strikeouts. Thomas went 0 for 5 with three strikeouts. Manessis 0 for 5 with a strikeout. So the Nats numbers two and four batters do not have good games. And yet still, the Nats put up seven runs on 11 hits and a walk and go three for nine with runners in scoring position. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and Capert Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nat's Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfis has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red hot antitrust, IP litigation, white collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years, in fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfis. 
Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Hey, Nat Chat. MLS All-Star Game this Wednesday. Tickets aren't cheap for this one with Arsenal coming to D.C., so you should check out the Game Time app. What would the baseball equivalent of this be? The Boston Red Sox are facing the KBO All-Stars in Seoul, Korea? Seems like a cool way to stage your All-Star Game either way. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for events like this one for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. It's the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. Get images of your seat before you buy so you would know exactly what to expect when you arrive. Snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT for $20 off. Download game time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Hey guys, I want to tell you about Factor. Uh, So we on the Nats Chat podcast talk all the time about who is and will be a factor for the Nats. Well, the factor that I want to tell you about is as good as any top-notch prospect. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit and can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track reaching your goals. With Factor, you skip the extra trip to the grocery store and the chopping and the prepping and the cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality that you need. Factor is fresh, never frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all that you have to do is heat up and enjoy. Treat yourself to 34-plus weekly restaurant-quality options like bruschetta shrimp risotto, green goddess chicken, and grilled steakhouse filet mignon. Again, ready in just two minutes. And so here's a special deal for listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Go to factormeals.com slash natschat50 and use the promo code natschat50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash natschat50 and use the promo code natschat50 to get 50% off. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Summer is here. The heat, the humidity, forcing your air conditioning unit into overdrive, leading to energy bills that are higher than James Wood's potential. <laughs> the solution, new windows from my friends at Window Nation, which is offering a great deal. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years, plus two free windows for every two windows that you buy. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Protect your home and increase the value of your home with great new windows from Window Nation, which does windows right. You know, the average installer from Window Nation has over 16 years of experience with over 20 thousand windows installed. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two years, plus two free windows for every two windows that you buy. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Amaya will be on the move from first. Three balls, two strikes, the pitch. Swing and a miss. He struck him out. And a curly W's in the books. He elevated the 96-mile-an-hour fastball 
And Suzuki swings through it. A curly W in the books. The final score, the Washington Nationals 7, the Chicago Cubs 5. This 7-5 win at the Cubs on Monday night really, I thought, was an interesting game from a pitching standpoint for the Nats. So we had Mackenzie Gore as the Nats starting pitcher. He was pitching at a game for the first time since July 6th, as of course we just had the All-Star break and the Nats are monitoring the workload of Mackenzie Gore this season. So the idea was, okay, this is an ideal opportunity to give him some rest. His final line ended up being five runs in six and a third innings. But he allowed one run through five innings. He then allowed two runs in the bottom of the six and two runs in the bottom of the seventh. He, in the outing, gave up six hits, two two-run homers and four singles. He issued two walks. He had six strikeouts. He threw a lot of strikes, 106 pitches, 71 strikes versus 35 balls. Bottom of the sixth score allowed two runs on a leadoff opposite field single by Seiya Suzuki through the right side of the infield and a two-run homer by Ian Happ to right field to cut the Nats lead to 5-3. Bottom of the seventh, Gore allowed two runs on a leadoff single by Trey Mancini up the middle and a one-out two-run homer by the Cubs' number nine batter, Patrick Wisdom, to left center field on a one-two pitch to cut the Nats' lead to 7-5. As you said at the top of the show, if not for those two pitches. I mean, to me, if there's such a thing as allowing five runs in six into third innings, but pitching well, this was it. I agree. And this game went kind of in several stages for him. First inning was great. Second inning was rough. He threw 32 pitches to get through the second inning, but he got through it only allowing one run. So I thought that was kind of big for him. And then he went goes on this run where he retired, what, 10 batters in a row from the end of the second all the way through the fifth and did so efficiently. And so in spite of that 32-pitch inning, he gets through the fifth on 75 overall. And I thought he had a good fastball. I thought, you know, he looked like the best version of Mackenzie Gore, as we've seen at times this year. Now, you get to a point here where you're going to start pushing him and seeing what he can do. And he knew both the home runs were bad pitches. He was lamenting that after the fact. He gets hard on himself, as we've seen him do when things don't go well. But I think this was actually a positive start for him to go as deep as he did had success through most of that. And I know a lot of people out there are going to look at this and say, he gets through the sixth. He gave up the two-run homer there. He's at 93 pitches. Why would you even consider putting him back out there for the seventh, given his age, given how they're trying to watch him and all that? A couple things here to point out. He had only thrown four innings this month. Okay, He had a blow-up start in Philly that got knocked out early. Then he had a 17-pitch start at home with a rain delay, and they didn't bring him back from that. They gave him an extended all-star break, pushed him all the way to this game. So he's on 10 days rest. So they went into this one knowing that he was good to go a little farther. Davey said the plan going in was 105 to 110 pitches. Barring seeing anything from him up to that point that suggested he was really tiring, they were going to push him. And yeah, he gave up the home run, but the feeling was that that was one bad pitch, not a sign of him really faltering. Now, in the back of your mind, you also know what the state of the bullpen is all of a sudden. And if Hunter Harvey's available and you can say, hey, we can go Thompson, Finnegan, Harvey, maybe you do pull him after the sixth. But knowing you didn't have that, you go ahead and push him. He didn't get through it. He gave up the home run. But I think you need to start seeing more of these kind of starts. This is a big step in his development. It may not always produce the result you want, but as long as he feels physically good and feels healthy, and he did, he wanted to stay in there and, and get, have that chance 
to pitch through the seventh inning for only the third time in his career, I think it is the right move to make. I understand why people are going to look at that and think that it was a problem to push him to that extent. But I think you got to start doing this kind of thing with him as long as he's feeling good. Yeah. I mean, you can't always judge the decision by the result. Like the result wasn't good, but I think the process behind the decision was sound. I mean, this clearly was the opposite of Davey getting the guy out on the high note, right? We've seen Davey do that, even basically admit to that. Like, you know, he had pitched five innings, he had pitched six innings, his final line was good, so I got him out at that point. Like, no, this was, let's see more, we could use more because of the bullpen. And yeah, because the guy hadn't pitched since July 6th, I think this is is perfectly reasonable to see him do that. It's just a shame that he gave up those two two two-run homers. Like, I don't get too emotionally invested in the outcomes of these games this season, but I do get more emotionally invested in the performances of these younger guys. And he was having such a nice game (laughs) and the two homers like ruined his line for the game. And it's unfortunate now. I mean, Mackenzie Gore's ERA for the season is up to 459. That's a full run worse than the ERA of Josiah Gray. And yet it doesn't feel like Gore has pitched to an ERA of 459 on the year. I mean, if you want to do the compare and contrast between him and Gray, Gore has 20 more strikeouts than Gray has this season, despite having pitched in nine and a third fewer innings than Gore has pitched this season. You really could argue from a process standpoint, Gore has been better than Gray has been. And yet Gray has the much better ERA and Gray was the all-star and Gore was not. So I just think that that's interesting. But yeah, this is a classic case of like, if you didn't watch the game or listen to the game or listen to this podcast and you just look at the box score, it does not tell you the story of this game for Mackenzie Gore. There was so much more to this game for Gore. And, you know, hopefully it's an experience from which he learns. But yeah. Five runs and six into third innings never looked so good uh, with what Mackenzie Gore did on Monday night. So we had Gore's performance, and then we had what went down with the bullpen. So first of all, the Nats on Monday announced a flurry of roster moves. They did include the anticipated placing of Hunter Harvey on an injured list. Uh, The Nats on Monday afternoon put Hunter Harvey on the 15-day injured list retroactive to Sunday with what is being labeled as a right elbow strain. Uh, We'll see of course, well, that takes us. The Nats on Monday afternoon also optioned reliever Yoan Adone to AAA Rochester and recalled lefty reliever Joe LaSorsa from AAA Rochester. And so life without the Nats' number one reliever, Hunter Harvey, began on Monday night. And for at least one night, the Nats' bullpen got the job done. Two Nats relievers combined for two and two-thirds scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Uh, We had the top two relievers for this uh, new-look Nats bullpen on display, Kyle Finnegan and Mason Thompson. So Thompson was up first. He tossed one and a third scoreless innings. He, in the bottom of the eighth, faced four batters, got just two outs, was plagued by some bad luck. He gave up two singles, including a one-out infield single by our old pal Jan Gomes on a tapper toward third base. I'd love to know how many infield singles Jan has had in his career, but he got one uh, in this game. And then Kyle Finnegan came into the game. One and a third scoreless innings for a four-out save. He came into the game in the bottom of the eighth with runners on first and second, two outs, and the Nats nursing a 7-5 lead. And Finnegan got a pinch-hitting Mike Talkman to line out to center fielder Alex Cole for the third out. And that out came off a two-out double steal by the Cubs to give them runners on second and third. And then Finnegan tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth with three strikeouts. This was lovely, especially considering that the last two strikeouts were of the Cubs numbers one and two batters in Nico Horner 
and Seiya Suzuki. So yeah, like, is this sustainable? Mason Thompson and Kyle Finnegan combining for two and two-thirds shutout innings? Probably not. But I give him credit. They came through and uh, Finnegan very much came through with what he did. The situation as it stands right now is they have two guys with any kind of experience pitching late innings. And it's not like they have mounds and mounds of experience either. Finnegan for a few years, but Mason Thompson, essentially this is the first year he's ever had to pitch in these kind of high leverage spots. They just don't have anybody else who's done it. But you can't keep going this way. Davey admitted it afterwards. Jordan Weems is going to have to be using these spots. Amos Willingham is going to get an opportunity to pitch in some big spots. The lefties, Jose Ferrer and Joe Lasorsa, are going to be brought in for some situational stuff late in games. They're going to have to find out what these kids are made of and if they have a chance of being successful in those spots. Willingham's going to have to pitch back in the bullpen. Weems, you know, was down today. He's going to have to, you know, hopefully he'll be all right tomorrow available. And then the two, the two lefties got to come out and face some of those, you know, some, some left-handers, some switch hitters. But on this one particular night, David decided just to go for it with his best guys. It worked out. You know, I thought Thompson deserved a little better. Like you said, the little dribbler by Jan Gomes. If not for that, maybe he gets through the eighth and uh, Finnegan can start the ninth clean. And Finnegan, it's funny, his velocity was down a little bit. He was throwing 95, 96 instead of 98, 99. Now, he said mechanically he felt a little bit off. Uh, his arm was dragging, and that's what led to it. It's not an injury kind of situation, at least not in his mind. But what's interesting is he still struck out the side or struck out three batters in the ninth, despite not having his best upper 90s, even approaching 100 stuff. And he said part of that was, in a weird way, the diminished fastball made his split finger fastball better. And so he threw that, it was like 91, and that was really his go-to pitch that he was able to get through all this. So, you know, a big spot for him to do that. He has closed before, but it feels like if you've watched him over the course of his career, He's best served in that fireman slash setup role, maybe get out of a jam in the seventh, come back for the eighth kind of thing. For now, he's probably going to get most of the opportunities in the ninth, although I'm, I'll am i be interested to see if there's another spot where maybe the heart of the lineup is up in the eighth, if he would go to him first and then somebody else for the ninth. But regardless, you're not getting through the rest of the season with only Mason Thompson and Kyle Finnegan. Somebody else, multiple other somebodies are going to have to step up and see if they can handle these spots, at least until Hunter Harvey returns, which, you know, it may not be as long as they worried, but it's still going to be a bit of time. It's going to be shut down for 10 days and then start throwing again. But as we know, elbow injuries, his history like they're not going to force that issue. They're going to give him time. So I think it's going to be a while until we see him. If you just go off saves versus blown saves, Kyle Finnegan last season, 11 of 15. Kyle Finnegan this season, 12 of 19. I mean, he has been spotty as a closer in terms of locking down saves. So yeah, it may well be that he is best suited for a non closer's role. I thought it was interesting, though, Davey Martinez in his postgame session with you guys, and you know, maybe this was Davey just putting a smiley face on things, but saying that he's looking forward to seeing what the team has in guys like, you know, Amos Willingham and Jordan Weems. I mean, here's the deal. The Nats, for a good chunk of this season, made like no roster moves with the bullpen, and we talked about that. That's not normal. They're almost, in a lot of ways, lucky that they didn't have to make more transactions. Now you've had this uh, regression to the mean during which the Nats are making like roster moves all of the time with the bullpen. A bunch of guys are out. I mean, you know, we don't even talk about Carl Edwards Jr. He's been out for a while now uh, with his ailment. You know, Thaddeus Ward is out. Now Hunter Harvey is out. 
And so this is how it is for most teams. I mean, this is normal. And the good organizations have a bunch of optionable major league caliber arms who you can shuffle back and forth between the major league level and the AAA level. And that's sort of how you maneuver things with the bullpen over the course of the season. You know, losing Hunter Harvey is bad. There's no doubt about that. But this, to me, is another test for the Nats and where they're at in player development and where they're at with what they have in the organization. We've talked so much about starting pitching and position players and what's happened with the draft and player development and yada, yada. We don't really talk about the bullpen anymore because it's kind of a secondary thing. And, you know, that was a thing in the good years when the Nats were good, right? The bullpen struggled. But that is something that the organization does need to get better at. And that is having bullpen plans for seasons that allow you to incur an injury or two and still be okay. Because a lot of teams go through this where a reliever or two or three get hurt, but you have other guys and you kind of just figure it out. That's what it is so often with a bullpen, right? You just have to figure it out. So I think it is going to be interesting to see what the Nats get out of, you know, Willingham, Weems, et cetera. And they're going to need this. Like if this rebuild is going to go as we want, they're going to need to be able to cultivate unknown guys into being decent relievers. And so maybe this is a blessing in disguise. You know, when the Nats got Hunter Harvey, he was not quote unquote Hunter Harvey. We had no idea what to expect. He ended up becoming their number one reliever. So as odd as it may sound, maybe a guy like Amos Willingham ends up becoming a lot better than we ever thought. I hope so. But that's something that I do think that the Nats need to get better at. It would be a huge success story for the organization because they have not had many like that. Not a top round pick. I mean, this is a guy further down who wasn't on the 40-man roster, wasn't showing up on anybody's top prospects list. But yeah, good organizations turn those guys into quality major league relievers. And, you know, Mason Thompson fits that category. He was not one of the Padres' top prospects. The Nationals got him in the Daniel Hudson trade. That's worked out really well for them. But where is the internal Mason Thompson? Where's the guy that they draft and develop like that who then makes it up and does something for them and has, a, you know, just a good solid career. I mean, you have to go way back to like Craig Stammen, part of the original 2005 draft class. I think he was a 12th round pick, I want to say. And he wound up having a really nice career as a solid big league reliever. Those are the kind of guys they need more of. They have to figure out how to develop them on their own because year in and year out, it's the only way you're going to be successful. You can't go into every year when you're good and have to do what the Nationals tried to do all those years, which is survive until July 31st and then acquire some veterans having good years. That just is not going to work in the long run. You have to develop your own. Yeah. I mean, it really has been an Achilles heel for a long time with the team. It's not easy with relievers. We get that. Like These guys are fickle. They're year to year. But again, the good teams figure it out. And so you'd love to see the Nats get to a point at which uh, they are able to figure it out more regularly with their bullpen. So game two at the Cubs, Tuesday night at 8.05. Patrick Corbin off the paternity list uh, will be the Nats starting pitcher. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show. We always love hearing from you. You can uh, email us at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the show, we'd love to have you on board. Hit up Tim Shover, see what we can do for you. That email address again is NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We have a website, check that out, NatsChatPodcast.com, at which you can order yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit his site, 
timnewmark.com. So for Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with Ben McDonald talking about the Nats' first round pick in the 2023 MLB draft, Dylan Cruz. And uh, this is from an extended conversation that our own Tim Shovers had with Ben McDonald. Uh, You can hear the full conversation at the end of our Game 88 recap. But for now, Big Ben on Dylan Cruz. Always been the dude. To me, he's the best position player in the draft this year. And Wyatt Langford may have something to say about the number one pick, too, the kid out of Florida. But what I love about Dylan Cruz is this. He turned down first-round money out of high school to come to LSU. He wanted the college experience. He turned down $2 million. He wanted that experience. He comes here. He wins a national championship. Ever since the kid's been 15 years old, he's had a bullseye on his chest because he's always been the best guy. He's always been the guy every pitcher was going to give his best stuff to every time and try to get him out. He went into this year as being the number one pick, and he had to live up to that. And we've seen kids kind of back up in their draft year when the expectations are at the highest. We've seen kids kind of back up in some ways. Dylan Cruz took two steps forward this year. You go look at batting average. He hit, I think, over 420 this year, the toughest conference of all college baseball, the SEC. He hit homers again. He can run. He's a guy I think that could stick in center field all day long. He is a legitimate center fielder at the big league level. His swing decisions, right, from his freshman year got a lot better. He quit chasing the ball in the dirt, quit chasing the elevated fastball. And that's what you want to see is growth, right? How does he get better? He's always had to pop. He had 18 homers his freshman year. He backed up with 21 homers his sophomore year. But he walked about 20 more times this year than what he struck out. So his swing decisions are really good. And what I love about him is he can use the backside of the field. It is not pulled with Dylan Cruz. As a matter of fact, I think at the pro level, they're going to want him to get the bat out in front a little bit more. But a lot of his home runs, a lot of his doubles and triples have come to straightaway right center field the opposite way because he lets that ball travel. He lets it get really deep, and then he's got the hands to power it you know, out of the ballpark the opposite way. And so another kid that works extremely hard, another kid that gets it, he's always been the professional approach for me. He almost plays the game like a big league, like he doesn't show a lot of emotion. He just comes to the ballpark every day. He's never missed a start. He's been in the lineup for three straight years at LSU. So he's a durable guy that plays a premium position of center field. And he's a big leaguer all day long. There's no doubt in my mind.